This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for August 11th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, for the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about the overall state of the COVID epidemic and what it might mean for the next pandemic. Today, let's get back to what's actually happening currently. We've published over this time a number of items that have helped delineate how we should be treating and preventing COVID-19. Let's look at some of them today. And we can start with the treatment of patients with established COVID-19. We've heard a good deal about the potential benefit of anti-inflammatory medications in patients. What has that looked like? Steve, anti-inflammatory medications do seem to be effective in later stages of disease. And, and in fact, glucocorticoids have become a central part of the therapy of hospitalized patients. The drugs have some advantages. They're cheap, and although they certainly are associated with some problems, most physicians are comfortable with their safety profiles. Thus, glucocorticoids have set the standard for therapy in patients with more advanced disease. It's unlikely that we can find existing drugs that are going to be less expensive or safer than dexamethasone. So any new therapies either have to be more effective or somehow enhance the effects of glucocorticoids to really add something useful to our armamentarium. So we recently published a study that used the Janus kinase inhibitor tofacitinib in this regard. What did we learn from that study? In this study, hospitalized patients at several sites in Brazil were randomized to either receive the drug or placebo for two weeks or until hospital discharge. The primary outcome was death or respiratory failure, an outcome that's usually measured using an ordinal scale. And this study used the same scale that's been used in other studies. The investigators enrolled almost 300 patients. Importantly, almost 90% of those were receiving glucocorticoids. The results were encouraging. The tofacitinib group reached the composite endpoint in 18% of patients as compared to 29% among controls. Importantly, the rate of death was lower in the tofacitinib group. There were several adverse events in both arms of the study, though, at least for the size of the study, there were no remarkable differences between the groups. This isn't the first study of this class of drugs. Tofacitinib has been studied by other groups, and we've also seen studies of other JAK inhibitors including baricitinib and ruxolitinib. Some of these trials have come to different conclusions, but it does seem that those conducted in patients treated with glucocorticoids have consistently shown a positive effect. This suggests that these drugs can work either additively or synergistically to help SARS-CoV-2 infected patients, at least once their disease is severe enough to require hospitalization. So Eric, this again raises the challenge of the Goldilocks problem. And for those who don't know this childhood story, when a little girl decides which soup she wants, is it too hot, too cold, or just right? How do we understand the complexity and the heterogeneity of the illness to be able to decide when to provide the right kind of anti-inflammatory therapy? This is a complex setting. The illness that these patients have is heterogeneous, in fact, if you look at the severity of the illness, 29% of the control participants had the primary outcome of death or respiratory failure. So these were severely ill individuals in the process of becoming even sicker. And that's a very important point in understanding when to deploy additional anti-inflammatory or immunosuppressive therapy, because this is on top of glucocorticoids, as you noted. 
So it's a very difficult clinical circumstance when to know to use these medications. What we don't know, there are many, many things we don't know. There are other anti-inflammatory medications that have been studied and that we consider using, such as the anti-IL-6 antibodies, and those were not studied here. So there are many questions about how other treatments can intersect with this pathway of treatment. But overall, what we do learn is we learn that when given at a certain stage of illness, this combination of anti-inflammatory therapy has important health benefits. This is an interesting situation, Lindsay. As you point out, anti-inflammatories are important and they seem to be important enough so that they become standards. We don't use anti-inflammatory medications as a primary part of the treatment of many infectious diseases, although they've been tried. And it's very likely that these drugs could help in a number of illnesses. It's just that it's difficult to do trials over the large number of participants that are needed to see the kinds of effect sizes we're seeing here. Nevertheless, there are some infections, particularly closed space infections like TB meningitis or cryptococcal meningitis, where inflammation is acute and a critical part of the morbidity of the illness, where it does make a difference. I think it's probably likely that together with effective anti-pathogen treatment, we could be using this more frequently, but it is very difficult to do the sorts of trials necessary to show that that's true. I mean, Eric, what you're getting at is, can we identify a homogeneous enough population? So with a given infection at a critical stage of illness, where the aberrant inflammatory pathway is a dominant part of the pathogenesis that we can then study it. And we're able to do that with COVID, sadly, because of its explosive transmission ongoing currently. So therefore, the large number of individuals who have the illness so that we can systematically study it, because these effects are not like a light switch. They're nuanced effects that require a larger number of patients to be able to study to discern the benefit. Another point that I wanted to raise, Eric, is just the issue of, in part, why glucocorticoids have taken hold as such an important treatment. And this gets to equity and accessibility. Glucocorticoids we have been using for decades. So even though they have side effects, dysglycemia, immune suppression, and facilitation of other infections, such as invasive fungal infections that we've heard reported, they are accessible globally and they are cheap. And as we develop these more complicated monoclonals, we have to realize the accessibility to them is quite limited to environments that are able to afford and deliver these kinds of treatments. I think that's a great point. Equity has certainly been a major consideration during this epidemic as the burden of disease is inequitable. I think that we focus a lot here in the U.S. on how different populations and different groups have been bearing a disproportionate burden of disease. But as we've pointed out before, internationally, vaccine is not available in the vast majority of countries, and the rates of disease and death have been overwhelming, crushing. So I think that having inexpensive interventions like glucocorticoids is very important. At the same time, I should point out that, as I mentioned before, 
glucocorticoids aren't without their risks. And we have seen explosions of problems with glucose regulation and mucormycosis, which undoubtedly have been exacerbated by the use of steroids. Looking beyond treatment, during the outbreak, we've used two general categories of interventions to prevent COVID-19. The first, which we're still using, is a combination of social measures, and the second has been vaccines. An article we recently published suggests that there's a third approach that might succeed. What's that? We've seen work in the past using monoclonal antibodies as therapy for patients with COVID-19. That's had some success, particularly in outpatients, if given early enough. But delivering that drug is logistically complicated. It's administered by intravenous infusion, and it's hard to set up that intravenous infusion. Also, these drugs are very expensive. So these two factors together has meant that in most parts of the country, this has not been heavily utilized. However, in general, in infectious disease, we rarely use antipathogen antibodies to treat infections. Instead, we use them to prevent infection. So for example, we use immune globulins to prevent all sorts of viruses from varicella zoster to rabies virus and others to prevent toxins from acting. Given the availability of very good monoclonal antibodies, the question is, could we use these similarly? And what then does the study we just published tell us? So this group of investigators decided to look at patients from multiple sites in the U.S. who were exposed to a household member with COVID-19, but were themselves negative by PCR. Investigators randomized participants to receive either a cocktail of two monoclonal antibodies or placebo delivered subcutaneously, and then followed them for 28 days to see if they developed COVID-19. I want to point out the fact that this was a subcutaneous treatment, which is far easier than intravenous. The participants were followed using weekly PCR testing, though the primary endpoint was a development of symptomatic infection. There were roughly 750 participants in each group, and the rate of development of symptomatic disease was markedly reduced by the antibody, with 11 cases in the treated group versus 59 in the placebo arm. Those who did develop symptoms in the antibody group also had a much shorter duration of disease and less viral shedding. There were more injection site reactions in the antibody group, but in general, the adverse events were pretty mild. So it's not really surprising that antibody can prevent infection, but the big difference in the study, as I already pointed out, was that it was given by subcutaneous injection, a far more convenient way of delivering antibody. This could make the use of antibodies a very viable option for those at highest risk, such as those with poor vaccine responses due to immune suppression. So Eric, as you point out, the use of pathogen-directed immunoglobulin has been a terrific tool in preventing the transmission of infectious diseases. You know, one of my favorite and I think globally important examples is hepatitis B. In women who are chronic carriers, it has been well established that HBIG, hepatitis B immune globulin plus vaccine at birth, substantially decreases maternal to child transmission of hepatitis B. So we need to think about these different tools, both where they fit in, the Goldilocks point that I made before, and then potentially as combination modalities, if we can understand which circumstances we want to have the best benefit. For hepatitis B, it is preventing the transmission with exposure during delivery, and then developing the neonate immune response against hepatitis B so they're able 
to protect themselves. So we're using the biology in a way that makes sense given the specifics of the circumstance. There are several aspects of this that are implicit. The stability of the target, the HEPI surface antigen, the classic Dane particle, that is a very stable target so that we can have a monoclonal or a hep B immune globulin targeting a very stable antigen. What we're watching with SARS-CoV-2 is that the spike protein is evolving. It's under evolutionary pressure and it is changing as it is responding to the immune responses of all the different people it's infecting globally. So the large number of individuals infected with the billions and billions of virions that is allowing the virus under selective pressure to figure out how to escape the immune response to the spike protein. And we've witnessed that in the emergence of variants. So this biology fits and makes sense. And we have to think about the tools we're developing to use them in a way that makes the most sense. Who to provide these tools to? You know, is it a prophylaxis setting, a pre-exposure prophylaxis, a post-exposure prophylaxis? These are all the kinds of things we debate routinely when we have a new tool to say which patient population can benefit. And in the study that we recently published, it's using it in the post-exposure setting. Somebody has COVID and those around them who are likely exposed can benefit from receiving the antibody sub-Q. And that's in part because some of those individuals were just exposed, there isn't established infection, therefore there's a high attack rate because they've been exposed, and the antibody can work in a very low number of virus situation. They're just exposed, there isn't established infection, there's not a lot of virus, and it can abort or diminish the infection to allow clearance. So I think there's a lot to be learned here. What is very helpful is the study was designed in a way that gave us a result that shows where efficacy can be established in this setting. Well, Lizzie, I have to agree with you. Evolution is truly annoying, and it continues to serve up a variety of variants, and it's not done. We're going to have lots more variants that are like Delta or possibly worse. I will point out that in this study, the Monoclonals are given as a cocktail of two different antibodies, each of which binds to a different epitope. That's far from perfect, but it does limit to some extent the ability of the viral spike protein to escape from binding. And so that should give this treatment some at least extra life, but it's far from ideal. As far as the practicality goes, I think that's a major consideration here. This is going to be presumably a very expensive therapy, and it can be used in a vast number of people. So how to choose among those and how not to break the bank, I think is going to be a major consideration. Eric, you talked about the particular needs of immunocompromised individuals. And today we published a piece on the use of a third dose of vaccine in a group such as that, that had poor responses to vaccination. This is a hot topic right now, and there's a good deal of discussion about whether to implement this in specific populations. What did we learn from today's study? This is an interesting study, Steve, because it's a randomized controlled trial, which is different from most of the observational studies that we've seen so far. This group studied a cohort of solid organ transplant recipients, which was pretty heterogeneous, included lung, heart, kidney, pancreas, kidney and pancreas, and liver recipients. 
all of the participants had previously received two doses of mRNA-1273, the Moderna vaccine. They randomized 120 participants to receive either a third dose of the same vaccine or placebo and measured both antibody and T-cell responses. As has been seen in studies with non-immunocompromised individuals, participants who received a third dose of vaccine largely had increased responses as measured by either antibody binding, antibody neutralization, or T-cell reactivity. Strikingly, several individuals who had low responses to the first two doses had substantial rises in their antibody titers. So as is the case with all studies looking at immune markers, we don't know how well these measurements correlate with protection. And as I said, this was a very heterogeneous group, different organs and different immunosuppressive regimens. But with these caveats, the data are encouraging if we believe, as we do, that more immune response is better. How we translate this into practice, especially given no data on clinical efficacy and a very small sample size for safety remains to be seen. So Eric, as we've discussed many times before, we need more data to understand how to enhance the immune response in those with weakened immune systems. And the definition of a weakened immune system is quite complex because we have a variety of immunotherapies, glucocorticoid use, and other underlying autoimmune conditions, let alone our transplant patients who may be on the more extreme end. So there are many complexities in here. And what is a protective immune response? Is it the binding ELISA, the pseudoneutralization, the neutralization titer, the T-cell responses, things you know, which you've mentioned that we often don't measure fully in our vaccine studies because of the cost and complexity of either collecting the samples or running the samples given some of these assays are not straightforward. But we have to remember that the data we do have may not be as full a picture as we would like. And the issue of what we detect or don't detect leading to susceptibility of a given patient. You know, and I think there are two aspects to this. One aspect is the anamnestic response in that if your immune system is primed, will you have a reasonable enough response when re-challenged with that antigen? And it's not something we're measuring. So we can infer it from different experimental models and different sets of clinical data, but it's not something we really have high quality data to understand. An additional issue to consider here is also the timing of vaccination in that is it that a third vaccination enables certain patients to respond or is it that a delayed vaccination months later in the context of immune maturation and increasing avidity where one can then elicit an immune response? And what is the breadth of that immune response in these individuals? Many, many more questions then we have answers. But it does speak to the need to better understand the quality and quantity of the immune response in these most vulnerable patients. We published another vaccine study today that looks at a different group. It's a study of the same Moderna vaccine, but in adolescents. Remember that this vaccine had only been studied in people older than 18 years in the initial phase three trial. This new trial extends that to the 12 to 17-year-old age group, a group that had previously been studied with BNT162b2, the Pfizer vaccine. What did we learn here about the Moderna vaccine? Steve, this phase three study explored the safety and 
immunogenicity of the Moderna vaccine in this younger age group using a study design that's similar to previous studies. Participants were randomized two to one to receive either vaccine or placebo at the same dose and schedule given to adults. What was different in the study is that it was designed to look at a different endpoint, the surrogate of immune response rather than protection, though protection against symptomatic and asymptomatic disease were secondary endpoints. It was a non-inferiority study that looked to see if this group of adolescents had a comparable response to adults. The investigators recruited almost 2,500 individuals to the vaccine group and roughly half that number to the placebo group. The vaccine had similar adverse events to those seen in adults and the neutralizing antibody level induced by the vaccine was similar to that seen in adults, well within the non-inferiority margin set by the investigators. Because this is a relatively short study of a smaller group, there were very few cases of COVID-19 with none in the vaccine group and four in the placebo group. These numbers are really too small to draw any real conclusions about efficacy. But overall, the results were encouraging. With some extrapolation, it's likely that this vaccine will be similarly effective in this population. It's still a relatively small group, which makes it difficult to conclude too much about safety. One encouraging sign is that there are no cases of myocarditis or pericarditis reported. This is important as there's some indication that myocarditis might be more prevalent in younger vaccine recipients. So Eric, this is the kind of study we desperately need. We need to extend these vaccines to our vulnerable populations and to those which haven't been previously studied extensively. Age de-escalation, those who are pregnant, as we discussed before, immunocompromised patients, how to generate large enough high-quality data sets to understand how these vaccines behave in these critical populations. And I agree with you, these data from a modest number of adolescents demonstrate a reasonable immunogenicity. It elicits the immune response that we would expect and has the side effect profile that we would expect. So it's consistent with the other data that have been developed, suggesting the vaccine behaves no differently in a 12 to 17 year old than in an 18 to 25 year old, which makes sense. I think these data are particularly critical as we look to going back to school and our children are large populations that can be amplifying reservoirs to really amplify the virus if they're vulnerable and get infected. And they're also very effective vectors in dissemination transmission, spending time together, so potentially sharing infections and then going home and sharing infections. So extending our understanding of how these vaccines behave in this critical population, particularly as we face going back to school, is so important. In addition, Eric, I think it's really important that we continue to monitor safety. It's not something that we can resolve in a few thousand individuals. Rare safety events, be it the myocarditis or other concerns, are best assessed in tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of individuals. And safety will be an ongoing process in all of the tools we're developing, from the monoclonal antibodies to the vaccines, to the treatments for those with illness. And as we expand the number of individuals treated, we will have to carefully monitor for less common safety concerns. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.